What's up? This is Jonathan Smith, your host here at Shooting the Schmitz. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tune into this podcast. Got Kevin Bone coming on to discuss with me the Colts' schedule. We're previewing the conference finals. Doc Rivers literally just got fired, so that gets tagged onto the end, so make sure you stick around for the whole thing to hear that part of it as well. It's an absolutely loaded podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. The fan here in Indy joins us now here on Shooting the Schmidt. First, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Yeah, you got it. Got a lot of of Colts fans who listen in, so anytime I talk to somebody who who knows Colts, it's it's a good opportunity. So the schedule came out last week. Going into the season, I think that there's, from a normal fan's perspective, there's this idea of we want to win a lot of games, we want to hit the over on the six and a half so that I hit my bet, (laughs) and everything's great, but... How do the Colts kind of bridge this gap of a lot of their core players are a little bit older, they've, they've had some injuries, and then you've got Anthony Richardson, who's this rookie quarterback who you're also trying to develop. How do they kind of bridge the gap of winning now, because a lot of these guys like Quentin Nelson and Shaq Leonard are in this win-now phase, whereas Anthony Richardson may not be? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, I, I think the answer, though, is rather obvious, even though it might sound harsh, just because um, I think you have to live in a reality and realize – You know, when Anthony Richardson is, quote-unquote, hitting his peak, you know, mid-ish 20s, a large chunk of this course is just not going to be here. Or if they are, they're walking up the final few holes of their career. Um, And I think you think back to the Peyton Manning era. You know, Manning was drafted in 98. At that point, you didn't have Edron James. You didn't have, you know, Dallas Clark. You didn't have Dwight Freeney, Robert Mathis, Bob Sanders. Uh, Reggie Wayne. I mean, outside of Marvin Harrison and Tariq Glenn, Jeff Saturday wasn't here. You know, outside of of, of Marvin and, and Tariq, you really didn't have any of that core. So I think that's just part of the process. Is sure you can help grow and you can you can win some games certainly in the next couple of years. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, those guys that play other positions that their careers just don't usually last to the mid thirties. Uh, that's what you're going to have to live with. So, you know, for me, so much of it is not about win loss. Obviously, I agree. The, the, the over under and all of that, and and you are in an easy division, so it's hard to totally ignore it. Uh, but honestly, for me, the best case scenario for this cold season would be to follow what the Pacers did this past year. And you show some promise with your young talent. You do win some games. You get you get into those moments that matter, particularly in the fourth quarter. But uh, this team needs another top ten and probably a top five pick. That's kind of what I'm thinking. And because of that, because they need a top 10 and a top 5 pick, I'm against starting Minshew to start the season. Just because he's a guy who's been around, you can probably win some games early on with him. Whereas with Richardson, I mean, every team has their ups and downs with with rookie quarterbacks. Would you do Richardson week one? Would you do Minshew? How would you kind of balance that? Yeah, for one of the reasons you just mentioned, I would definitely start Anthony Richardson week one. Um, You know, 13 games is just an incredibly small sample size from what you have in college you know a lot of people use the example of Patrick Mahomes sitting year one and what he did uh with the Chiefs in that second season I think people forget Mahomes played 32 games at Texas Tech he did 32 is quite a big number compared to 13 that Richardson got at Florida and Richardson was not always a quarterback you know he was the back end of his high school career but even early on you know he was not initially a, a, a QB so I think for many of those reasons um, you need to throw them in the fire. You know, I, I've said it quite often, Jonathan. I don't think there's a position in sports that differs more from practice in a game than, oh, no. than quarterback. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. You, you literally wear a different color jersey yeah. in in <laughs> practice. So, um, 
I, I would start him. I trust Shane Steichen to kind of handle him with kid gloves in the sense of, all right, Anthony, let's sit down and let's discuss the dozen, two dozen plays, concepts, whatever that you really like, and let's mold the game plan around that. I also think if you look at the schedule, I think the opener and even week two, both are very conducive to a young QB. I mean, you're at home in the opener. You play a Jacksonville team that Jim Bob Cooter, your offensive coordinator, just came from, so you would think he would have pretty good intel on Jacksonville. Uh, then week two is a game in, in Houston. Uh, Houston, I would put 29th, 30th, 31st, wherever in terms of intimidating road atmospheres in this yep. league. So, and you obviously know them, you know, fairly well. I get that uh, they obviously brought in the new coaching staff. So, I would play Richardson week one. His development is paramount. It's the single thing that matters the most this season. And I get that there is some people that are like, well, you don't want to throw him into the fire and then break him. And, and they say break him more in a mental sense. Yeah. If you're worried about that, then you shouldn't have drafted this kid. Exactly. And, yeah. and again, I don't think he's like that. Like, I don't think I, he is either. I want to make this clear. I, I, I do feel like mentally he, he he's wired in a, in the right way, but um, I would throw him into the fire right away. Yeah, I I agree with everything that everything that you said so far. So with the idea, before we move on to the schedule, with the idea that a lot of these guys like Quentin Nelson and Shaq Leonard, a lot of these guys at other positions who are ready to win now, just with this idea that they probably won't be around when Richardson is ready, is there any potential for the Colts to look to move some of these guys to pick up draft picks, pull in other young players, anything like that? Sure. I, I, I understand the, the thought process. Um, I don't think that's the route they're going to take. I mean, obviously we saw a little bit of that with – uh, Stephon Gilmore being mm-hmm. traded for a fifth-round pick. I think you do find that happy medium. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm totally going against my earlier answer, but like, I do think you can win in this early-ish yeah, portion. I By early-ish, I mean, let's just call out Richardson's rookie contract. So it's a four-year deal with a fifth-year team option. You know, you have seen, and I'm not saying the Colts will be in the Super Bowl, you have seen Super Bowl teams with rookie contract quarterbacks. You know, the Joe Burrow. And yeah. Cincinnati, certainly Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City, even Jared Goff with the Rams. You know, Jalen Hurts technically was on that that rookie contract, even though he was a second round pick. Um, you know, Carson Wentz was on the rookie deal when Philadelphia got there with yeah. Nick Foles. Obviously, went a big part of that. So, I think with this division, as bad as it sounds, you are a Trevor Lawrence torn ACL away from saying, "Is it the Colts with Jonathan Taylor? Is it Tennessee with Derrick Henry? Like, who is the favorite at that point?" So. I think you still keep those guys around. If you do get to a point in time where it's like, all right, we really need to cash in, then you do that, particularly around the trade deadline. Uh, but you want to make sure that you support Richardson. And I think that is something you can get into as well, Jonathan, of like, if you look at this roster right now, you know, right guard, corner, safety, those are three positions I'd point to as like, ooh, I, I don't mm-hmm. like what they have there in terms of a win now. For me, I think the right guard needs to be addressed more than the DBs. I'm good at the youth movement on defense. Yeah. Particularly when you've drafted young and early at those spots, they drafted with three three corners in this last draft. Yeah, three corners yeah. and safety's been a popular pick or a position that they've drafted. But you know, when you talk about trading Nelson, I want to make sure that Anthony Richardson is supported and that he's For, not playing behind yeah. a broken offensive line. So maybe on offense, more of that veteran veteran support. But you know, a guy like Buckner that people bring up, yes. Um, he could help you out from a trade value standpoint. I also think he's kind of a rare guy that could play, you know, into his 30s and and maybe even a little bit deeper there, um, just because he's been so durable throughout his career. Uh, but that that is a really fair question to ask. Yeah. Um, do you know who's going to play left tackle this year for the Colts? Because that was kind of an issue last year. And any do you have any insight on that, or who who do you think is going to play? Yeah, I think Bernard Ryman is going to be the left tackle from day one. Okay. Um, here in year two, and I understand. 
that that thought process. You know, I'll give Jeff Saturday credit. I think sticking with Bernard Ryman to end the year was a smart decision. Ryman played every snap once Saturday took over, and I think in a second half of the season that was really defined by embarrassment league-wide, um, you saw individual growth out of Ryman, which was vitally important. You know, you draft him in the third round, and he was 24 years old. That's old for a, for a draft pick. It is. But he's only been playing tackle, or had only been playing tackle for two years in college. Yeah. So you really needed to make sure that you committed to him and saying, all right, got to live with some growing pains. And he had that. The Denver Thursday night game was baptism by fire to the nth degree with him in that moment. Um, but he's put on some weight. We, had, we actually had him on our morning show. Last week, he's put on about 15 to 20 pounds, so he's in the 315, 320 range, and I think you have to commit to him. And to me, it's actually something I wrote for our website, 107bythefan.com, this morning. To me, Jonathan, he's the most important player on the team this year. Yeah. Because there's a trickle-down and the domino effect to it. If he breaks down, that could impact Anthony Richardson. And now you go into next offseason, potentially with saying, well, what do you have in Richardson? But also, what do you have at left tackle? Yeah. Because you did invest. And I think at some point, you know, left tackle, quarterback, wide out, DN, corner, the positions that matter the most, you can't put first-round picks into all of them. Ideally, you would, but that's just that's not realistic. Yeah. At some point, you've got to hit with kind of that middle-ish round. You know, the Colts era with Manning, they kind of hit at corner a little bit with the middle-ish round guys. you got to hope that's the case with Ryman. Yeah, totally fair. Let's let's move on to the schedule. When you first saw the schedule, what were your first thoughts? Is it favorable? Is it not favorable? Is there any stretch in here where you're like, that's going to be really tough on Richardson? Is there any stretch in here where you're like, this could be the stretch where we see Richardson really have some growth just because the defenses that he's facing aren't as good? Yeah, I will start here. The word that I keep on using with the schedule is tame. Like, it's one of the tamer schedules I've seen. You know, think about last year, the quarterbacks inside of Lucas Oil Stadium. Patrick Mahomes, Jalen Hurts, Justin Herbert. Yeah. I mean, that's quite the trio right there. This year, the best quarterback on the schedule might just – and I say home schedule – might just be week one. It might just be Trevor Lawrence. Yeah. Um, I guess you could maybe throw a Stafford, maybe throw a, a Derek Carr or a, you know Deshaun Watson. But um, it's a very tame quarterback schedule And then on the fl- at home. And then on the flip side of that, on the road, I don't see top five, top seven road atmospheres anywhere. I yeah. thought, honestly, the hardest road environment for Richardson would have been Foxborough. Well, now Foxborough's Frankfurt, Germany on a neutral field in 48,000-seat stadium. Yeah. So that is a huge advantage. Yes, you play at Cincinnati, you play at Baltimore. Those are good teams. But, again, it's not Arrowhead. It's not the Superdome. It's not Minneapolis. It's not Seattle. Um, even Lambeau. I'm trying to think of these other kind of better road environments. Buffalo, I think, deserves to be up there. Oh, so, yes. For all those reasons, I think this is a really tame schedule. If you want to get a little bit deeper into it, um, the only teams that won double-digit games of the 17 games that you'll play this season from last year is at Cincinnati and at Baltimore. Yeah. Um, if you want to look at the quarterbacks and take it a step further, you could have five of your 17 games against rookie quarterbacks. I mean, that's nearly a third of the schedule. Uh, Desmond Ritter and Kenny Pickett, you want to throw them on the list as just second-year QBs? That's seven of your 17 games. Obviously, you're going to start a rookie. And again, I say all this not to say the Colts are winning 11 games and hang the banner and start the parade on Georgia Street. But I'm saying this from a, I don't recall a time where I've looked at a Colts schedule in May and thought, whoa, that's tame. Um, As far as kind of the hardest stretch, refresh my memory, early December, 
Uh, there's kind of a three-gamer yeah. there. Titans, Bengals, Steelers. Okay, yeah. And, and Is it at Tennessee and at Cincy? It is. Okay, so that's one that kind of stood out. You know, I'm maybe being a little biased there because Pittsburgh's always had the Colts number. Uh, but that was one that stood out. But again, I mean, to the question, because that's a question I asked myself when the schedule came out last Thursday night. I don't sit here and see a four or five game gauntlet. Obviously, yeah. the AFC South is front loaded again with with your first two and four of your first six. But um, I think it's one of the on paper easier schedules around. Yeah, I agree. I think the nice thing about the quarterback situation in terms of who they're playing against is you're not going to get into shootouts against Mahomes and Allen and these guys, and so you're really going to be able to turn around and hand the ball off and lean on Taylor. You would think throughout the entire season, just because they aren't going to have any games where they're where they got to put up 35 points to win. Yeah, that that is a good point. And, you know, I I probably should mention, this time last year, if you and I would have this conversation, the Colts had the NFC East on their schedule. They did. And I, I would have looked at the NFC East in a much different light than, what, three playoff teams that they had? Yeah. Last Al- season? Almost four. When yeah. I was all, yeah, and wa- Washington was knocking on the door. And the NFC South, you know, that's the crossover. It's the NFC South, the AFC South, of course. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit easier. It Without a doubt. Last thing, and then I will let you get on out of here. Um, We're going to go out. Outside of the Colts, and, and but stay in the division, though. I think the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to be the number one seed in the AFC. Wow. Their schedule, it's really soft. All their games are, all their tough games are at home, mm-hmm. and they're early. So, like, they play Kansas City at home in September. I think that's week two. So, you got a Midwest team in Kansas City going down into the hot environment in Florida. We've point. seen teams kind of struggle with that, especially with Miami, the Miami and Buffalo game last year. Is that a crazy idea? You probably haven't looked a ton into the Jack schedule, but from what you know, am I absurd or not? You know, again, when you first say it, my reaction, everybody just heard it, it was like, (laughs) whoa. But, you know, part of this is life in the AFC South. And I've mentioned this before. I've called the AFC South the true TV division. And by that I mean this. When the NCAA tournament rolls around uh, each year, I'm always scrambling to which games are on true TV. And I feel like the AFC South, with how putrid that division is, they deserve to have all their games on true TV. <laughs> now, I no longer think that because at least they have entertainment with the young QBs. Yeah, of course. But I say that to say when you talk about Kansas City within the West or you talk about Cincinnati in the North or Buffalo in the East, I think you consider those three teams their respective favorites. Yeah. The gap from those three to number two in their divisions are a whole lot different. Something that we looked up when the schedule came out, because I brought up this Lawrence, how important he is to the Jaguars um, storyline before. I believe Kansas City might be the only other team that is a bigger division favorite than Jacksonville. Really? If you look at all eight divisions okay. in the NFL. Now, again, a lot of that has to do with what's two, three, and four within your of course. division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you say that, and I don't know what, the NFC or the AFC West crossover is, it's not the NFC South. So Kansas City's playing a tougher NFC division than you would think the AFC South is. I, I get where you're coming from on that. Where I have a question with Jacksonville is just, was it a two-month fluke? And two months is a long time in the NFL. Oh, yeah, it is. But if Tennessee beats them in the final game of the season, they, they don't make the playoffs. Yeah. So And then they don't create the unbelievable comeback against the Chargers and, and all of that. So I think that would be the question. That you would have of yeah. like, okay, you know, we have a year of Doug Peterson and Trevor Lawrence on film now. You know, how do teams react to that? And I think, in credit to Jacksonville, we've gotten away from the stigma of like, it's Jacksonville. I mean, sure, the environment is not hostile, but they're they're a darn good football team. Yeah. So, uh, not the craziest thought 
in the world. I mean, I would still, you know, certainly take a Kansas City or, or a Cincy or a Buffalo, but they're just naturally going to get beat up more within, within With those the division, divisions. Which I know it's played into your, to your line of thinking on that. So I like it. Thank like you. It. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for the time, man. I'm ready for the season. I know you're we're a week and a half away from the 500. We got things coming up here in Indy. I'm we do, about. we do. Yeah, it's funny. I um, I do enjoy a little bit of quiet time, like late June or early July. But I, just looking at the calendar, I'm like, wow. I mean, we are probably like two months and a week away from training camp. You know, some joint practices. It sounds like with the Bears for for training camp. You do have a primetime game in the preseason for Colts fans that that, that <laughs> want one that they'll play on the Amazon Thursday night against the Eagles. So, uh, it, it's a fun time, and I think. The Pacers have already done it. The Colts are hoping to do it. They've created some hope. And by going down this path, that's the biggest thing. I think they've neglected their franchise and their fan base by going the Band-Aid route. Look at the AFC quarterbacks, man. No one went Band-Aid. All these teams that are legit, all seven playoff teams from last year, they all drafted those Mm -hmm. respective quarterbacks. You have to go down that path. You've done that. you got to develop. you got to support Richardson. But I think finally you've offered your fan base, and more importantly, your your franchise. You've you've told guys in that locker room, okay, we're going to try and create a five to seven year window at some point. When will that happen? We'll see. Uh, but I think it's in a it's an intriguing time to be a Colts and Pacers fan, I and I have not said that uh, for, for for quite a while. For sure. Thank you again so, so much. You bet, for the man. Time, man. Yeah, of course. Big thanks to Kevin Bowen for taking the time out of his day to hop on the podcast. Now, the NBA playoffs, that's what we're going to start. Let's start with the Warriors, since they did get eliminated since the last time I did a podcast. Now, let's just break down what's going to happen with the big three to start out with, okay? Steph Curry's going to be back. Clay, Clay Thompson has a player option. He's going to opt in because he's not going to get paid if he opts out. Simple as that. Draymond Green, they have to renegotiate his contract or else he's going to become a free agent and all that. And that is where things start to get interesting. The question is how much money... Do you pay Draymond Green, a guy who doesn't offer a lot on the offensive end, but is a lot of what your identity is, brings a lot of intensity to the team, he's your best defender, what do you do? How do you pay him? Because he's 33 years old, he's about to be 34, and as soon as his athleticism goes, he will not be able to play any longer. Because that's what his entire game is based off of, the athleticism to get out and defend smaller guards, but then to also, because of his size and his willingness and his grit, being able to fall back and defend the rim from time to time. So as soon as that athleticism goes and those abilities go, he just isn't going to be worth a whole lot of money. So what do you pay him? Also, with the luxury tax and all the rules that now fall and happen, with all of that makes it way more complicated. They want to get under the tax and I think that's going to be a major thing that, that they try to do. So paying Draymond Green a max contract, which I don't think he's worth, if he asks for a max contract, the Warriors should move him along and not even think about it. What I would do is probably give him a three-year deal, pay him somewhere between 25 and $30 million. I think that's the best scenario for everybody. That's still a decent chunk of change. Doesn't break the bank for Golden State. Allows them to go out and potentially add some guys if they can move some other players around. That's what I would do. We'll see if Draymond Green wants to go for it because these guys' window, it's very small. They all know that it's small. Draymond Green knows that he's coming to the end of his window. And once that window closes, it's really tough to make a whole lot of money. So, you know, Draymond Green's going to be fighting for his money. And we also know that the Warriors are going to be fighting to not overpay him. Now, in terms of moving pieces around, I think that they have to move Jordan Poole. 
maybe this is me, you know, the bias of I don't like Jordan Poole. I hate the way he plays basketball. I hate how much he fouls. I hate how many bad shots he takes. I hate that he doesn't play defense. I can't stand it. Can't stand to watch him play. Maybe, you know, that's just, you know, the bias of that coming out. But at the same time, they're paying him a whole lot of money. Paying him a lot of money. And, look, they're at the end of the road. They might have one, maybe two years left where they can really make a push. And that's it. Windows closed. And Jordan Poole, I mean, we saw his performance in these playoffs. He was inconsistent. He didn't make shots. He didn't play defense. He committed a bunch of dumb fouls. He was bad. He was bad. He wasn't good against Sacramento, and he was terrible against the Lakers. I think you have to move him. The only issue with moving him now, though, in the offseason, would be that you're selling him when his stock is very, very low. And you don't want to sell stocks when they're low. You want to sell them when they're high. Okay, you want to look to trade a guy while he's averaging, you know, 27 points on 35 minutes a night while shooting 48% from the field and 38% from three. That's when you want to trade Jordan Poole. Okay, right now the taste in everybody's mouth when it comes to Jordan Poole is everything he did he did against the Lakers, which a whole which was a bunch of nothing. A waste of time. So that's what I would do if I was Golden State. You have to figure out a time to move Jordan Poole. Maybe they come out first 20 games of the season next year. They really feature him in the offense, and then they look to move him right before the deadline, around Christmas or something. Maybe that's what they decide to do for Jordan Poole. A lot of people are talking about potentially trying to move Kaminga as well. I don't know if I'd move Kaminga just yet, just the athleticism that he possesses. I just I don't know how you move off of that. I get that they're trying to win now, but at the same time, you still want to set up for the future, and it's really complicated. They're in a really tough spot. What I would do, I would keep Kaminga, and Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga would would play 25 minutes a night at least, probably closer to 30 if if I had control over that. Okay, you have to give those guys reps because you're not paying them a lot of money, and those should be key at a minimum key role players by this point. Okay, they're both lottery picks. Okay, we saw it from Moody. He shot the ball really well. Shot, you know, 54% from the floor during, you know, the playoff minutes that he got. Shot over 40% from three. Played good defense. We've kind of seen it from Moody. We've seen what he can be. And from Kaminga, we've seen the flashes and everything that he brings defensively. And we've seen, obviously, the athleticism. And he can finish around the rim. He needs to extend the range a little bit. But... There has to be a movement to get those two guys involved and ready for the playoffs because they had the entire season this year to do that, and they just didn't do it. They played Lamb and other guys that you've never heard of over them. And then maybe part of that is telling you that, hey, Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga, they just aren't that good. But from what we saw in the playoffs, I don't think that you can say that about Moody. And from what we've seen from Kaminga, it's really hard to buy into that idea that they just aren't very good. Okay, those guys have to get minutes. Those guys have to be developed properly next season for the Warriors to have any kind of chance at grabbing one more title before the Steph Curry era closes. They have to do that. Even if they keep Jordan Poole, even if they overpay Draymond Green, whatever. They have to develop Moody and Kaminga. Those things have to happen. Moving on to the current NBA playoffs, Western Conference Finals. Nuggets, Lakers, game one is tonight. Heat, Celtics, game one is tomorrow night. NBA lottery is tonight. We just got a lot going on in the basketball world, and it is fantastic. 
Lakers Nuggets game one tonight. Um, I'll tell you right now, I like the Nuggets in seven. I don't think either team loses a home game. Both teams are six and zero in their home games coming into this series. I think that trend continues. Just the defensive efficiency for the Lakers goes way up when they're at home. The shot making of the Nuggets goes way up when they're at home. And when the Nuggets role players make shots, they are impossible to beat. I don't know how you beat this Nuggets team, okay? And a lot of people are keyed in on this Anthony davis Nikola Jokic matchup, and rightfully so. Okay, you can make a case that these are the two best players in the series. I would say that these are the two best players in the series. And anytime the two best players play the same position and they match up and they're going to be defending each other, like, how can you not talk about it? Like, this this needs to be mentioned. But this isn't what's going to make or break the series. Okay, like, LeBron James is going to show up and he's going to do what he does every single night. Anthony Davis, sometimes he's going to show up, sometimes he isn't. He's showing up consistently on defense, just the offense. Who really knows what he's going to do there? And then... We know, we know Jokic is going to show up. Those three guys, you can pencil them in for their average numbers every single night. The question is the other guys. That's the question. When we look at the Lakers, the reason why they beat the Warriors wasn't because of Anthony Davis and it wasn't because of LeBron James. Those guys did exactly what we expect them to do. They were consistent. They scored the ball. They got their teammates involved. They played good defense. They did all of it. We did. They did exactly what people expect them to do. The reason why they won was because Lonnie Walker scored 15 points in a fourth quarter in Game 4. The reason why they won the series was because Dennis Schroeder and D'Angelo Russell combined for 38 in Game 1. Austin Reeves had multiple 20-point outings. Like That's why they won the series. Because the role players, kind of at random, very similar to the Miami Heat and what they do, they had a random role player show up every single night, and that's why they won the series. That's why they won. So that has to happen for the Lakers. They have to get that random role player having a really good game, especially on the road. They got to have it on the road once. And it can't be, you know, a random, you know, like, you know, Austin Reeves scored 18. No, 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 no. It's got to be like, you know, D'Lo had 20 and Reeves had 20 and Rui Hachimura had 15. It's got to be something like that where they have, you know, more than two guys. They have three guys really show up and score the basketball because Denver – Scores the basketball better than anybody left in the playoffs. The offense is crisp. They get nothing but good shots when they slow down and they take their time. Especially when Jokic is able to operate from the free throw line. When he catches the ball at the free throw line, they're going to get a good shot. Okay, it's awesome. It's great to watch. It's why basketball people freak out on Twitter about Nikola Jokic, even though he's not super athletic. Because he's just an absolute machine on the offensive end of the floor. The question for Denver, though, obviously doesn't lie with Nikola Jokic and how he looks. It lies with Jamal Murray. Because he can be up and he can be down. He's got to be up. He has to be up. Okay, if Murray, you know, comes in the series and he averages, you know, 25 and 7, I don't know how the Nuggets lose this series. I don't know how the Nuggets lose this series if, if that's what happens. Because, you know, Michael Porter Jr. is going to have a couple games where he shoots it really well, and KCP is going to have a couple games where he shoots it really well, and Aaron Gordon's going to have a game where he scores 20, and it's bound to happen. They get so many good shots that they are bound to have one of their role players play really well every single night. We saw it in the Phoenix series. I don't know how the Nuggets lose this series if Jamal Murray consistently shows up in every single game. 
Because when he's going and Jokic is going, they're able to run that screen and roll, and it is tough to stop. But it's going to be really tough for Murray because the Lakers have several defenders to throw his way. Dennis Schroeder can defend him. Jared Vanderbilt can defend him. If LeBron needs to defend him for two minutes, he can. They have multiple options. Austin Reeves can defend him. Rui Hachimura can defend him. They have multiple options to throw at him throughout the course of the 48 minutes. And, look, he's a really good player. Okay, like, we've seen him go crazy in playoff games before. We've also seen him score 15 points in a game, kind of like he did in game, I guess that was game three against the Suns in the last series. Okay, like, he had a game where he shot, well, like, he started with one of 14 from the floor, and then he didn't have the Jason Tatum fourth quarter where he scored 16. He didn't have that. He just finished the game with, like, eight points. Can't have that in this series. So he is the major key for the Nuggets. He has to show up. He has to do his thing in order for them to win. I like the Nuggets to win tonight. Game one, they've had a little bit longer of a rest. We'll see how it goes. This is, you know, the feel-out game or whatever. I think if there's any game that the Lakers steal, though, it will be this one. I think it's going to be a really good game. I think the Lakers are going to come out looking to take game one. Because, look, if you take game one, then the pressure of game two is much less. The pressure for the rest of the series, really, is much less. So... I expect the Lakers to come out guns blazing tonight, looking to take game one. I don't think they will, though. I like the Nuggets. As I said, Nuggets in seven, home team wins every game. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with more Shooting the Schmidt. We'll come back. We're going to preview Heat Celtics, and we're going to talk NBA Draft Lottery tonight as well. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with more Shooting the Schmidt. And we're back with more Shooting the Schmidt. And I'm about to say something that I found myself saying over and over and over again throughout this entire playoffs, when we look at the Eastern Conference, the Miami Heat are not as talented as the team that they are about to play. They weren't as talented as the Hawks across the board. I didn't think that they were as talented as the Bulls. I definitely didn't think they were as talented as the Bucks, and I didn't think that they were as talented as the Knicks. But they continue to beat teams. They just continue to do it. Three minutes away from elimination. They lose the first playing game to the Hawks. They're three minutes away from getting bounced by the Bulls. They miraculously come back. They then dominate the Bucks in five. They handle their business against the Knicks pretty easily. I mean, even the games that the Knicks won, they were close. They almost won a game without Jimmy Butler on the road. Game five was really close. I mean... The things that the Miami Heat have done, the things that Eric Spolstra has done, the things that Jimmy Butler has done cannot be understated just how incredible they have been throughout these entire playoffs and playing games. I mean, it's been outstanding. There's no other word for it. But now they have to play the Celtics. And every single Celtics fan is not excited about this because it's the Heat and they just they just find a way. Okay, even though the Heat probably aren't as talented as the Knicks, if you ask Celtics fans, I guarantee you Celtics fans would have rather played the Knicks. Because they don't have to deal with Eric Spolstra. And Jalen Brunson is just a little bit easier to deal with than Jimmy Butler. I This series is going to be so incredible. I don't feel like it should be because the Celtics are hands down across the board. They are hands down the better team. But they have a first-year head coach who didn't look great in that 76ers series until games 6 and 7. 
Yeah, they've got a guy in Jason Tatum who can be kind of up and down. They've got a guy in Jalen Brown who turns the ball over. Al Horford's 36. Marcus Smart's an absolute wild card. You just don't know what you're going to get from this Celtics team night in and night out. Whereas with the Heat, you know exactly what you're getting. Okay? You know exactly what you're getting. Okay, the Miami Heat are the restaurant that you've been going to for the past seven years where you walk in and you sit down and they're like, oh, hey, I know that you want a burger, plain, just meat, bread, and cheese with fries, light seasoning, and a Coke. Because that's what you always get. And that's exactly what the Miami Heat are. We know exactly what we're getting. We're going to get a good Jimmy Butler performance, okay? And we're going to hopefully, if they win, then they're going to get a random role player to play really well. Max Struess is going to have a game where he hits four threes, or Duncan Robinson's going to have a game where he hits six threes, or Gabe Vincent's going to get hot, or Bam Adebayo is going to score, you know, 23 points and pull down 12 rebounds and dish out six assists, or Kevin Love is going to hit four threes. Somebody, some random role player, and yes, I said Bam Adebayo is a random role player. I will, I will stand by that until the day I die. Okay, he is. You know, the third option on almost every other playoff team that made the playoffs. That's beside the point. They have a random contribution from a random player. And every single guy plays defense. There is not a single guy on this Miami Heat roster, except for Tyler Hero, but he's hurt. Where you see him and you point at him and you say, we want to put that guy on an island. They don't have a guy like that. And that is ultimately what I think makes them so tough. Because every other team... You can hunt somebody. Okay, when we look at the 76ers, you could hunt James Harden if you wanted to. The Celtics decided to hunt Joel Embiid on the perimeter instead. When we look at the Nuggets, you can hunt Nikola Jokic on the perimeter. When we look at, you know, the Lakers, you can probably hunt LeBron a little bit now just because of his age, and he just, it's not that he can't play defense, he just doesn't want to play defense. You can hunt D'Angelo Russell because he can't play defense and he doesn't want to play defense. When we look at Golden State, you can hunt Steph Curry. We saw Lonnie Walker do that. When we look at the Knicks, you can hunt Jalen Brunson because of his lack of size. When we look at the Bucks, uh, who could you hunt on the Bucks? You could pull Brooke Lopez out onto the perimeter. Like There are options on every team of like this is how we want to attack them. But with Miami, you can't do that because all those guys can defend. Bam Adebayo can defend on the perimeter. Great in the screen and roll defensively, protects the rim. I mean, defensively, they're just they're awesome, right? Like, you can kind of hunt Duncan Robinson if you want to. Um, you can probably hunt Kevin Love if you want, but I just teams just haven't, right? So that's what makes Miami so tough. And obviously, the coaching, you can't say enough about Coach Spo, one of the best, if not the best coach in the NBA. Meanwhile, Boston, super, super talented. Jason Tatum, one of the best players in the world. Jalen Brown, All-NBA. They're both All-NBA. Jason Tatum, first-team All-NBA, fourth in MVP voting. Jalen Brown, second-team All-NBA. They've both been really, really good this year. This is their fifth Eastern Conference Finals appearance for both of those guys. So they're experienced, and they're talented. But for some reason, this team just doesn't feel like the team from last year. The team from last year had some, like, had some grit to them. They had some, we're going to walk all over you, and when you're down, we're going to kick you, and you're not getting back up. This team just doesn't feel that way. Maybe it's because Ime Udoka's gone. I don't know. That would be my guess, because that dude's tough. That dude's tough. 
You, you look at the Celtics like, oh, Mar- Marcus Smart's tough. No, Marcus Smart's annoying. He's not tough. He's annoying. He does little things that get on the other team's nerves. Draymond Green's tough. Marcus Smart, not tough. Just to clarify that. <laughs> so, I'm going to take the Celtics to win the series. I just I think that at some point, the lack of talent on the Heat's roster has to show up. It has to show up at some point. Has to. And I think that this is where it happens. Give me the Celtics in seven. I think this is going to be a really hard-fought series. I think we have an outstanding duel in Game 7 between Jimmy Butler and Jason Tatum. You know, where one guy goes for 30, the other guy goes for 40. But the difference is Jalen Brown also has a good game, and the Miami Heat struggle to find a second guy to really show up because, like, it's it was kind of bam. He was much more consistent against the Knicks. And I just, after seeing what Al Horford did to Joel Embiid and just how tough he made life on him, I just I really struggle to see Bam out of bio being super consistent throughout the series. Just the amount of perimeter defenders that Boston has. Because when Boston wants to play defense, they can play defense. Okay, they're gonna have multiple bodies to throw at Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Malcolm Brogdon, Derek White's a good defender. Like that's five guys right off the rip who you know can play defense on the perimeter. Right, and we already mentioned, you know, Al Horford underneath and what he did last series, and you know they're gonna have Williams roaming off the ball, protecting the rim. I mean, there's some really tough matchups here for the Heat in terms of them finding a way to score. And when we look at a lot of the Heat's wins, they're low scoring affairs. They're like low hundreds, high ninety type of games. And this team for Boston, there's just so much scoring. There's so much shooting on the floor with their roster. It's gonna be really tough. I think for the Heat to keep, you know, four games, you know, in the low 100s, high 90s area. That's a really tall order for this Miami Heat team. But I have a lot of respect for them. I have a lot of respect for Spell. I have a lot of respect for Jimmy Butler and what they've done. And so because of that, I'm going to take the Celtics in seven because I just don't think that they'd be able to close them out on the road in six. So going to be a great series. Cannot wait for it. Something else I cannot wait for. The NBA lottery is tonight. The ping pong balls of fate will be drawn. We will find out tonight where Victor Wimbamyama is going. And oh man. So I have I have my top four teams that I think Victor Wimbamyama would be fun on. Here, let me actually let me just pull this whole thing up. I'll I'll give you where I don't want him to go as well. So let's start with where he would be the best at. Number four, the Dallas Mavericks. You can't tell me that you wouldn't love to see Victor Wimbamyama and Luka running the high screen and roll together. Can't tell me you wouldn't love to see that. Wimbamyama can pop. He could catch it off. He can, you know, he's a great lob threat. He's going to protect the rim. He's going to, he would do more for the for the Mavericks defensively than I think he would offensively. Just in terms of need, in terms of like assessing needs, obviously he would be a really good offensive player for them. But that's a guy who you can run your offense through when Luca's off the floor. That's a guy who can handle the ball when Luca's off the floor. Okay, I would love to see him end up in Dallas. This may or may not be because I'm a Dallas Mavericks fan, but hey, whatever. Number three, I have the Pacers. Halliburton and Wimbam Yama on the same team, I think, would be absolutely electric. Okay, like having a real legit point guard who wants to get Wimby going, I think, would be a great thing for him. Because I've got my number two team has guards that don't necessarily want to see Wimby win, so to speak. But 
Halliburton does. Like That's a guy who's going to go out of his way to set up Wimby. They have a coach in Rick Carlisle, one of the best offensive minds, one of the best coaches in the NBA, one of the guys that we don't really talk about enough. And this is like a Pacers roster that has a lot of talent on it already uh, due to Wimby's ability to stretch the floor, Miles Turner's ability to stretch the floor. You could play those two guys side by side. I mean, this Pacers team, I just they, they would be... A really, really good spot for Wimby. And then you've got Matherin as well, just another scoring option. Like, if the Pacers were to land Wimby, they would 100% host a first-round series next year in the playoffs. I firmly believe that. Same goes for Dallas. Number two, I have the Rockets. Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. make me nervous. Are they going to give Wimby the ball enough? If Steven Silas was still the head coach, I would say no. But now that it is Ime Udoka, I'm going to say yes. Okay, pairing him and Jabari Smith together defensively I think would go really well. Two guys who can protect the rim. I mean, I think he would be a lot of fun on the Rockets. I think he would play really, really well there. But the number one option has to be the Oklahoma City Thunder. I mean, it has to be, okay, Josh Giddy giving him the ball, SGA giving him the ball, him playing alongside Chet, a guy who's barely even played. Uh, both of the Jalen Williamses I think would fit well alongside him. Um, due to like his skill set, it's really hard to find players who he wouldn't play well with because he can step out and he can shoot it, and he's athletic enough. He can do some different things for you defensively. But yeah, one of those four teams is where I'd like to see him end up. Places I would like to not see him end up. Charlotte is definitely on that list. I do not want him to end up in Charlotte. I think that would just be the worst thing ever. I don't want to see him in Charlotte. Simple as that. I don't want to see him play with LaMelo Ball. I want him to actually, you know, touch the ball on offense and get some shots up. Uh, I don't want to see him in Detroit. Detroit has just a lot of bigs between Duran and Wiseman. I just don't know how well he would fit there. I will say, though, it'd be nice to see him play alongside Kate Cunningham. You know, I talked about Tyrese Halliburton earlier and how he's the guy who wants to get his other teammates going. Kate Cunningham kind of operates in a very similar way. Um, so play, seeing him play with Cunningham would be fun. But I just don't know how it would work out with the other bigs there in Jalen Duran and James Wiseman. Um, and then finally, I don't want to see him in San Antonio because there's there's no one else on that team. There's no one else on that team that I like. Like, Kelton Johnson's okay, I guess. I think that's, that's really it. Like, that's really the only guy where I'm just like, hey, like, that's that's not a bad player. Like, would they really be that interesting? They would be interesting just simply because they have Victor Wimbanyama. Like, that's it. The only reason why they would be interesting. And I forgot there's one more team I'd like to see Wimby end up on, and that's Portland, just because I want to see Dame relevant again. I like when the Blazers are relevant. Damian Lillard, Jeremy Grant playing with Victor Wimbanyama, I think would be a lot of fun. So that's going to do it here at Shooting the Schmidt. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tune in and listen. Make sure to watch the NBA playoffs tonight, watch the lottery tonight. NFL is actually going to be here before we know it. We're less than four months away. It is coming up. All the things slowly just coming our way. It's going to be great. Cannot wait for it. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tune into the pod. I'll be back again on either Thursday or Friday with another podcast for you. Make sure you follow along so you don't miss anything that we got going on over here at Shooting the Schmitz. Thank you again. I hope you have a good one. I'll talk to you all again on Thursday or Friday. Yeah, we aren't done. I was about to upload the podcast. I was about to hit submit. It's about to be in your, you know, Spotify notification or your, your Apple Podcast notification. 
And then my phone buzzes, and I learned that Doc Rivers was just fired by the Philadelphia 76ers. I don't have any notes on this. Don't need notes on this, though. You knew it was going to happen. He's the easy scapegoat. He's the guy who blew, who blew the 3-2 lead. He's the guy who's blown more you know, 3-1 leads than any other coach in the history of the NBA. Whatever. But here's... it's it's. I don't think it's his fault. Okay, game six. The Sixers just kind of quit at the end when Jason Tatum gets hot. Game seven, Embiid and Harden are both awful. Neither one of them showed up. And it's really easy to just blame the coach and this... It's true in every sport, okay? It's the easiest thing to do in the NFL. Okay, the easiest thing to do in the NFL is to fire your head coach, not revamp the roster. The easiest thing to do in the NBA is to fire your head coach, not revamp the roster, okay? And you sit here and, you know, you got a guy in Daryl Morey who really, really believes in James Harden, despite the fact that he is, you know, James Harden has failed Daryl Morey over and over and over again, dating back to his time in Houston. And ultimately, what I think this came down to is James Harden says in his postgame press conference, you know, that he gets asked the question, how is your relationship with Doc Rivers? And he says, it's okay. That's all he says. And then, you know, yesterday, you know, I, I got another notification. I, I read another report. I believe it, believe it was from Woj, not too, too sure. Or maybe it was Shams. W- one of the bigger guys. They said that apparently the 76ers were going to decide between keeping either Doc Rivers or James Harden this offseason. And so maybe it's one of these things where Dot, where James Harden went to Daryl Morey and says, look, I will stay, but I do not want Doc Rivers as my head coach next year. Or maybe they're just like, you know what, Doc Rivers, you aren't the guy. So the question now is, who do the 76ers go and get? So, look, if you're the 76ers, you have to key James Harden in on this conversation because they need another guard. Unless they think Maxi is ready to go. Like, if they think Maxi's good enough to be the number two option behind Embiid, then you can let Harden walk, you free up a whole bunch of cap space, and you're able to then go and get other role players to surround Embiid and Maxi. But outside of that, like, if they let Harden walk and they don't feel like Maxi's the guy, it is slim pickings in this year's free agency class. And so, because of that, they may be forced to pay James Harden and try and do this one more time. And I think a good way to keep James Harden around would be to very simply ask him who he wants the head, who he wants the head coach to be. I know who I would go and get. This is my answer for every team. I think every team should go try and hire Nick Nurse because Nick Nurse is incredible. The Suns should try to hire Nick Nurse. The 76ers should try to hire Nick Nurse. If you can't get him, maybe Mike Budenholzer. Maybe. I don't know. He doesn't make adjustments. I don't really know if I would hire him. Maybe that's who they're looking at. I just think that anytime you fire a head coach, you need to have an idea of who you want to go and get next. I doubt that the 76ers have that in mind since, you know, they got bounced only only a couple of days ago. Maybe they try maybe they try and get Monty Williams. I don't know if I'd hire him either. I've got a video on YouTube coming out about that, shooting the Schmidt. You can go you can go subscribe there and watch that. So we'll see what they end up doing. We will see what they end up doing. But yeah, Doc, Doc Rivers fired by the 76ers. Just just broke. Literally just broke. So now I'm signing off. Thank you again for listening, for, you know, to these extra three or four minutes or so. Thank you all so much. Have a nice day. I'll talk to you all again on Thursday or Friday.